The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The title I've been working from in preparing is Contemplating Dukkha as Ennobling Truth, although I actually prefer ennobling reality. I'll say more about that. And fundamental characteristic. I'll explore these terms a bit later. Um, so thanks to Common Ground and all of you for having me back. I've become suspicious why it's always early January. <laughs> I'm thinking oh, maybe people from California and Hawaii aren't willing <laughs> to come, but I don't mind so long as the roads aren't too bad. Uh, and it's always been a good experience over something like 15 years. Hopefully today will also be a useful, wholesome experience in service of the path of awakening, which I assume we all could use. I can, and I'm of the opinion our society could use some awakening as well, though exactly how to bring that about on a large scale still escapes us and maybe always will. What I envision for today will be roughly similar in style to the last couple Saturdays I've been here, which will involve short uh, didactic bits by me, no long talks, but short, for me, shorts, 15, 20 minutes, sometimes less. But more emphasis on some guided practices, could call them meditations or reflections, depending how you in, or I interpret those words. I've got a list of possibilities that will exceed our time, so I'll kind of pick and choose as we go, depending on how you interact with uh, the material today. I would like to frame all of today as an inquiry. Partly that's to me an overriding theme, and I think the tenor or style of the early Buddhist teachings. It's one reason I won't use the word noble truth, 
except when I slip and forget. I'll say more about that. I feel the Buddha wasn't about passing on truths the way a certain form of religion does it. And I'm not speaking one religion or another because this happens in all the major forms of Buddhism. And that's one way I feel Buddhism loses track of the original heart of the tradition. My reading of the early teachings is that it's more about pointing to realities and offering tools for inquiry. That's what I think much of the teachings are about. They're pointings at significant aspects of human life and experience, as well as practices, uh, which broadly construed could fall under the umbrella term of meditation. But if we take that term narrowly, uh, there are many things we could call them intellectual inquiries, reflections, investigations, all of which for me are a broad and profound tool set for those who wish to inquire experientially rather than philosophically into some core questions and realities of human life. Today's inquiry will focus on dukkha, which is one of the many Buddhist terms that have a cluster of meanings and no single translation can capture the wealth of meaning. This can be frustrating for people because at first it seems helpful to have one term. Well, just tell me what the damn word means. But if we're not careful, we lock into one possible meaning and lose the rest. And there are some other translation difficulties that I may touch on later. But first, I'll stick with the word dukkha. <clears throat> Does this word mean pain? It's one way it's used. And it's... English translation I found. When we speak of dukkha as a noble truth, does it mean pain? Or another translation whose 
translator active here in the U.S. often uses stress or stressful. Does dukkha mean suffering? If so, how? What kind of suffering? And as I'll explore today, hopefully with you, when does it mean suffering? What if sometimes suffering is a pretty good translation and other times not or even misleading? which is the problem if we insist, well, dukkha means suffering. What if sometimes it doesn't? Then, of course, what do you mean by suffering if somebody else, somebody like me, says suffering? Misery. This used to be a more common translation 50 years ago. Dukkha meant misery. Some even older English translations, ill. The noble truth of ill or woe. Although woe's better for another Pali word that could be translated sorrow. Last night, Mark used unsatisfactoriness. Does this term work well? How? When? When Mark uses it, what does he mean? When you hear it, what do you take from it? You'll hear a bit later how I might use it, because I do. What about distress? And um, there are others. My friend Lee Brasington, he likes to translate dukkha as bummers. (laughs) He cops to being an old hippie who smoked his share of dope or weed, and uh, he thinks bummers is a pretty good translation. He's got a good argument. You can go to his website (laughs) and get his take. I probably won't use bummers too much today. But uh, so these are just some preliminary questions to open up the inquiry. And part of my point right now is if we're going to make use of these core teachings that hinge on the Pali word, it's also a Sanskrit word, dukkha, what does it mean in different ways it's used? which is the next thing I want to do a quick summary of, and then we'll revisit as we go. 
Ajahn Buddha Dasa points out that there are three primary ways the word dukkha is used in the Pali Suttas. The most complete record we have of early Buddhist teachings. Early Buddhist means the first couple centuries. We have no way of proving what goes back to the historical Buddha, but we can make some well-educated guesses, more than guesses, of what the first two centuries understood, and definitely the first three or four, which is the sutta period. In suttas, and I would say this applies to early suttas, the first century or two, dukkha is used in three primary ways, and I'll be fleshing out this summary as we go. The first is dukkha as what's called vetana. And we'll do a guided practice so that this word can have some experiential meaning. Vetana is usually translated feeling, but that too can confuse. So please bear with me. Vedana will be a word I try to avoid translating because it tends to confuse the teaching a lot because of the range of ways Americans take the word Vedana, including as emotion, which is just flat out wrong. Flat out. No excuse for explaining it that way. I understand, I like to talk about Vedana as the pleasure-pain spectrum or the realm of pleasure and pain. There's a place where the Buddha says, more or less, this teaching, this Dhamma, is for beings that feel. And there's a lot to that. We're sensate creatures. We have a nervous system that senses through six, seven, eight modalities, depending on how you want to number them. Traditionally, Buddhism has six, but arguably we could stretch that seven or eight. Sensate creatures, but Vedana's more than that. In our sense experience, we experience a range of gradations of uncomfortable to painful experiences, and a range of comfortable to 
pleasurable, including intensely pleasurable as well as excruciatingly painful. So I'm purposely trying to signal a spectrum. It's not like there's one or two or three things, but this is a way of talking about a whole range from extremely painful, which hopefully we don't often have to go through, moderately painful, which may show up most days, to mildly painful and uncomfortable, like flossing teeth. That's just part of life. And then comfortable, mildly pleasant, moderately to ecstatic. And there's a term that fits somewhere in the middle, neither painful nor pleasant. This is the one way of talking about a range of vetana that seems to almost always accompany sensate experience. Buddhism sort of distinguishes between the underlying sensory experience and the pleasure-pain aspect, but the distance between those two is minimal. And I question whether we can experientially separate them, but we can notice some distinction when we pay attention. So the word dukkha is the word I was just translating as uncomfortable, painful, through to excruciatingly painful. That's one use of dukkha. The second is within the core framework of Buddha's teaching, often called the Four Noble Truths, or as I prefer to speak of them, Four Ennobling Realities, or even Fourfold, because in a sense it's one four-sided reality, not four separate truths or realities. I'll go into this in more detail later. Why ennobling reality might be a more accurate way to understand the Pali word Arya Satcha. By the way, Pali is the language in which the earliest Buddhist teachings are recorded within Theravada Buddhism. They're also in Chinese and a few other languages, but the Chinese was translated from Indian languages. 
dukkha is a Pali word, as is Arya Satcha. How is dukkha an ennobling reality, which is the first of the four, and then the origin of dukkha is a second ennobling reality, and the quenching or cessation of dukkha, and then the path that leads to that quenching. Are we talking about <coughs> the same dukkha? That's a question I want to raise and explore. When we're speaking of dukkha as one of the two main options in experience, painful experiences, slight to extremely painful, pleasant experiences, slight to extreme. Is that the same as dukkha, as an ennobling reality? Depending how we understand that question, we will translate it the same or maybe different. A third way that dukkha is used, and again I'm following Ajahn Buddhadasa because I think this is one of one of his insights into early Buddhist teaching that has often been obscured and confused understanding of those teachings, that he claims dukkha is used in three different contexts and the meanings will, are not identical. So the third context is dukkha as a basic characteristic fact or quality of all created phenomena. Anything that arises out of causes and conditions, i.e. was created somehow, and which in Buddha's teaching, therefore, can't last, will fall apart and end. Everything that has those characteristics also has the dukkha characteristic. The Pali word is lakana, which sometimes is translated sign the three signs of existence was popular in Sri Lanka in the 70s when a lot of the books I first studied were from 70s, 80s, 60s Sri Lankan books. This meaning of dukkha 
applies to the whole range of Vetana. This is something Ajahn Buddhadasa liked to point out. How is it that pain has the dukkha characteristic and so does pleasure? How are you going to wrap your minds around that? That happiness is dukkha. What does that mean? Some ways we take words like happiness and, you know, does it make any sense, for example, to say happiness is misery or happiness is suffering? I'm not going to try to answer all of these questions in detail, but I hope I'm getting across the value of inquiring as we explore these teachings, what are we talking about? Because if we're simply repeating what we heard from somebody else who's repeating what somebody else said, that's something the Buddha actually ridiculed. Or maybe that's somewhat too strong a word. But he poked fun at Brahmins of his time who are just repeating what their teachers said. But guess what? It's common in Buddhism too. So-and-so said, whoever so-and-so may be, if we take so-and-so as an authority, well, that's what the Buddha taught. Maybe, maybe not. So um, I hope I'm being appropriately subversive without being uh, mean-spirited. So that's my kind of opening for today. I'd like to now do a guided reflection. And you could call it a meditation, but by reflection, I mean it can involve some intellectual inquiry, kind of like Tibetan Lamrim practice, which is a lot more cognitive than mainstream Vipassana, which emphasizes mindfulness, which, by the way, is another one of those tricky terms. Did you know it's derived from late 19th century Christian ideas? (laughs) Although its meaning has changed since then, especially after... John Kabat-Zinn had to define it for the medical literature, which has influenced how we use it now. But that's another day. So please uh, take a minute to 
sit comfortably. This won't be a long guided practice, but it helps if you're somewhat comfortable. And maybe settle yourself a little more, bring attention inside by taking a few deep, comfortable breaths, releasing them in a way that's relaxing, and sit with your breathing for a minute. How does your breathing feel right now? Are there any ways it feels uncomfortable? Is there anything about your breathing that's uncomfortable? If so, simply Take note. And if your breath is comfortable, simply note that. Next, let your awareness roam over and through your body. Is there anything physical that feels uncomfortable, whether on the surface, such as perhaps 
cold air. Or in muscles. Maybe back pain. Or maybe internally, such as in the gut, if digestion's not going so well. If you come across anything uncomfortable or painful, just take note. Are there areas of tension or tightness, such as in the jaw or throat? Or the pelvis that are uncomfortable? Maybe we have sniffles, dry skin, dry eyes that might feel uncomfortable. Next, let's switch to the sense of ears and sounds. It's not particularly noisy in here. Do you hear any sounds that are uncomfortable? unpleasant, painful to hear. 
any sounds you might experience as mildly annoying or maybe grossly annoying. How about my voice? Is it beautiful and mellifluous or kind of scratchy and annoying? How was that cough? You might think back. Were there any sounds recently that were disturbing? Where I live, there are occasional gunshots. You probably have them in the city as well. What about an ambulance siren? A noisy TV? a screaming child on an airplane or your living room. The senses of smell and taste might require memory right now, but you'll have your opportunities throughout the day and tomorrow. Can you recall odors? that are unpleasant, like last time you visited the bathroom. Or if you compost and were lazy about taking it out, got a little bit rank. For those who have cats, or you botched a recipe, burnt toast, think of odors that 
you wrinkled your nose at, cringed at, on some level found unpleasant, even painful to smell. Often we notice this, there's an almost automatic withdrawal similar with flavors. Sit down to a meal and bite in and there's something not right. I don't know if you have ladybug infestations here. We do. They don't taste good. And it's even worse if they get burnt in a light. What if you're a real finicky coffee drinker? or tea and the darn barista didn't make it right. If you're like me, too much sugar, yuck. In Buddhism, mind is considered a sense door as well. Memories, thoughts. I bet you can think of political figures that are unpleasant, even painful. or media personages. Think of words. Words generally have connotations, and just to think a word the 
the one that President Trump is accused of using for Haiti and some African countries. How does that word resonate in you? Does it feel pleasant or unpleasant? Whether it's more the sound or more the meaning, I bet you have some memories that are still painful or difficult. Lastly, um, please open your eyes, look around the room. Is there anything your eyes land on that is unpleasant to look at? Like for me, I have areas of skin that have been damaged in various ways, and for me, it's unpleasant to notice. So that's a guided reflection to hopefully either help you visit or revisit the territory of Dukkha Vedana. You maybe have noticed I use the word unpleasant a lot, plain painful, uncomfortable, but I didn't use the word suffering. So just to be transparent, (laughs) uh, I don't think the word suffering is that applicable to Dukkha Vetana except in intense form. like witnessing one of our cats eight years ago that was dying of cancer. And the pain seemed to get quite strong, and I'm, I'm willing to call that suffering. 
Although usually I don't use this word suffering for dukkha vetana. Any observations that struck you as something new, interesting, curious? Um, sort of that it, it has a lot of different uh, flavors. There's no like one sensation or or uh, location or anything that I could like pin down as fundamental dukkha. Which to me has two important dhamma aspects. One, terms like dukkha vetana or unpleasant feeling or painful feeling, it's a category. But in any moment, we never experience a category. We just experience. People forget this when we abstract the teachings. The teachings are usually categories. So it's important to keep noticing we never experience categories. We experience specific members of a category. Second, there's a connection with the teaching of not-self. If it's not this entity, then it's not-self. My question about uh, Vedana and Dukkha is... Um, where to place um, the experience uh, that might be called like a talk, chronic, toxic feeling of resentment or negativity, the sort of thing when a person experiences everything in a negative kind of way, just has an unrelenting negative cast of, of mind. Is, would that fall under Vedna, or is that going to be another kind of um, dukkha? I mean, it's a very persistent, toxic resentment. I think in general, it's a mix of resentment is not vedana, it's a sankara, if we use the language of the five aggregates. And it probably involves so-called perception, although that's another problematic translation, but I'm not going to complicate everything today. So, we can get locked in such a deeply entrenched way of perceiving life. So it's got that, and then there's the more reactive part, which is sankara, conceptual, emotional reaction, and all of that's probably 
mildly to severely painful. So the Vedana's constantly coming up. But if we, if, if the person under experiencing this had the ability, which might be real hard, if someone's caught in that, the ability to do a fine-grained investigation may not be there. So therapeutically, you find an entry point the person can recognize. And so what I'm saying now might not be uh, a useful intervention. But anyway, the perceptions are likely to be almost all painful, mm -hmm. as well as reaction. For me, resentment is unpleasant, except when it stirs a certain kind of cheap ego thrill. Then there can be a little burst of pleasure to my resentment. But it turns, for me, it turns sour, sour bitter. And then to complicate it even further, those, that kind of reactivity entrenches all kinds of body stress, tension, which it screws up breathing, hormones, neurotransmitters, the so-called inner milieu, all of that's out of whack which is going to be unpleasant as well. So all these things are going on that can be a basis for Dukkha Vedana. And hopefully that's, um, well, hopefully it's not quite the right word. I don't know how many of us here would experience what you raised because then it's, well. I mean, actually, it's something I see much less amongst my Dhamma friends than people I encounter very regularly who are not... Uh, Dhamma practitioners at all, but just seem to, um, you know, be like that little peanuts character who you know, always has the cloud over his head. It's all I mean that that no matter what it is, it's um, it. There's just a lot of a lot of suffering through this person's extreme negativity and other people. But I, I think one of the joys of Dhamma friendship for me has been that um, I see much less sort of blaming and resentment among my Dhamma friends than I do among people who don't practice. And the next thing I want to move to will touch on that. But let's not go there just yet. Any other observations? Back there. I've noticed that to the good... <clears throat> to the degree that I focus on it and allow it to become the only thing present in my mind, the more intense something can become. 
So if I'm having back pain, perhaps, if I remind myself that, well, today my ankle is fine or my leg is fine or this is fine or that is fine, it becomes a smaller percentage of my overall awareness. And therefore it slides a little bit more towards the middle versus towards the extreme. Yep. Which connects with what Patrice just said. We learn skills to not get sucked into it. Alrighty. Um, we've been here about an hour, so let's take a very quick break and then come back. So let's uh, pick up the inquiry, uh, unless you continued it during the intermission. Who's familiar with the simile of the second arrow? Is that well known? Okay. For those who didn't raise your hand, here's how I remember it. The Buddha speaks of someone who is shot with an ordinary arrow. And then is shot in exactly the same spot by a second arrow, which is smeared with poison. And probably, I don't know, excrement or something that causes a bad infection and reaction. So that's the simile. The way I understand this is the first arrow is naturally painful. I've never been shot by an arrow, but I've stepped on thorns, for example. I used to go around barefoot in Thailand, and there was a tree where I lived, kind of like locust trees in the Midwest with two-inch thorns, and occasionally I'd step on one. And sometimes I would get upset, uh, utter harsh words under my breath, or even if I was alone, uh, out loud. I'm confessing I was a monk at the time. So I'd like to use, um, so I gave one example from my experience. I can also think of times doing 
carpentry where I hit my thumb, you know, holding a nail, missed. I've split my share of nails and created uh, bloody openings in my skin here and there. So please think of your own, and we already heard a couple examples just before the intermission, where something painful occurs, and then something else intervenes very soon, like the second arrow smeared with poison and other stuff that causes a festering wound. So I'm taking the first arrow to be Dukkavetana, some, some unpleasant, painful experience, a thought, memory, a smell or flight, taste, something visual, a sound, tactile like stepping on a thorn or being stung by a mosquito. Please uh, reflect on your own experiences where there was also a second arrow. What kind of reaction took it from a painful experience to something more, something that words like festering, if, if we use the simile, something festering, something toxic intervenes as a second arrow. And my question is, what is the nature of this second arrow? Does pain require a second arrow? In, in the original simile, the meaning is clearly no. Whereas painful experience may be part of life. This, this simile seems to me to point to 
the second arrow being optional. Now in the simile, the person is shot by someone else. But the, uh, the way it's used by Buddha is whatever the first experience may be, the second arrow is more shot from somewhere that we can't really locate outside ourselves. I'm avoiding saying we shoot it ourselves because there are teachings that the Buddha says you can't really say it's shot by someone else. You can't really say it's shot by ourselves. So I'm keeping that in mind. Any, uh, anybody want to share? an experience of a second arrow and what's what's going on with that second arrow. Could you pass it back? So um, I would say that the first arrow was um, emotions that came up related to um, having a new supervisor at work, Um, somebody who came in from outside the organization and just the, you know, the the difficulties, I suppose, of of adjusting um, or just, you know, having uh, whatever initial sort of emotional uh, response came up, and I worked very well with that for a couple of months, and um, really felt a lot of equanimity, and really felt like it was, you know, I accepted it. I accepted what, what was happening, and this is part of life. And um, I would say the second arrow arose when I, um, when I realized that a lot of my coworkers were suffering and that they were looking to me for support. And I think that what the second arrow was was non-acceptance. I think that when I got to the point where I was no longer accepting the situation, was um, it really became a, a huge source of suffering for me. And... Um, I am in a still in a real quandary. This is why I'm talking about it is because I hope that maybe somebody has some some thoughts on this um, of um, when you're trying to when you're seeing other people suffering or you're suffering yourself and um, or, or you know I, I think at the time I, I wasn't really so much suffering myself and it was kind of more of a response of of um, of you know, wanting to help other people but not being very um, skillful at that. And um, to be able to to accept a situation and still act to change it. That is a, that's a difficulty for me. And it seems to me that the second arrow for me is non-acceptance. 
Um, and yet sometimes I find myself in a situation that perhaps is called on to, you know, to try to affect some change. And I don't seem to be able to do that and to maintain that acceptance. Because this example seems to span many months, is that correct? Do you mind if I reframe a bit? And so if we go back to the early part of your scenario, so a change of supervisor, and that itself involves a whole bunch of moment-to-moment experiences, right? many of which I'm taking were a source of difficulty, discomfort. Sometimes just change is uncomfortable. We're set in our ways. We like the old supervisor, the uncertainty of a new one. So if we go back and you look at many, many particular experiences and just you probably you won't remember them all but try to notice how a number of them are simply uncomfortable awkward difficult that i would say is the dukkha vetana And it could be that all, at some stage, the behavior of the new person were, there were things said or done that also were awkward, uncomfortable, painful. You didn't, you may have implied that. I don't, I, the reason I'm looking at you funny is because I'm not sure what the difference is between that and what we were just talk, what you were just talking about. Well, you used the word um, emotional. Right, right. But uh, and I think you said emotional reactions. Yeah, but what I really meant was simple. Was like a first. Um, 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 how do I say this? I, I, I kind of a more of the I, I said emotional, but I think maybe that was too strong a word because it is more. I'm thinking about unpleasant. Okay, this is unpleasant, you know, but it's okay. I'm okay, you know. I'm okay with this. It was a sense of acceptance there. Okay. So. So. If initially all these little awkward, difficult, unpleasant things could really be received with acceptance, mm-hmm. there's no second era. Exactly. Okay. Later, there's a somewhat different input. 
that's about how other people that you seem to care about are having trouble, right. i.e. not so accepting and then reacting. Right. No, those are their reactions, first, second, third, I don't know how many arrows. Yes. <laughs> but, but for you, there's the initial, you started, you noticed visually or you heard or kind of intuitive sense, however you started picking up. I must, sounds to me like that was painful for you. And further, those painful inputs, which are somewhat different, when it just was you, maybe you were able to accept it, but now you're not so accepting. Right. And rather than acceptance of the, well, that's just how it is. your response, reaction, was different. Right, and that changed my reaction and response. In, you know, my initial, like from then on, it was not just about um, my coworkers, it became about me. And then every time, you know, I'd have those same interactions that I had been having before and accepting, I was no longer something that shifted in me and I was no longer willing to accept them, right. I think. so. So once you, if you're like many of us, out of these, you're not accepting, one, it's unpleasant to see this or hear this going on with people around you, you're reacting, you're probably starting to create a narrative about it. And then when it's just you, you drag in the same narrative, and now you're reacting to stuff you didn't react to before. Exactly. So now there are these layers of reactivity. <laughs> yes. So for practice, uh, to me, part of trying to look at this the way I've just attempted is then now you, the more fine-grained that can be, then you have more uh, opportunities to start undermining the reactivity that you've built up and is now has a certain momentum. I still don't find myself... Um unable to work with um, trying to affect change in the situation, but also letting go of my reactivity. I don't seem to be able to do both. That's common. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Well, partly it's common in our species that you hold on to the pain the reactivity, the narrative, 
as a motivation for working for change. So a skillful, engaged Buddhist needs to find a, a different motivation. For one's change. How do you, and the, the standard one is because it can still connect with pain is compassion. But compassion is often confused with taking someone's side, yes. Yes. which then you're against someone else. Yes. That's not compassion. We, as Buddhists, we like to dress up our habits in Buddhist terms that make us feel better. That's more Vedana stuff. And it's one way we perpetuate the reactions. So if you can start to trace it back and work on healthier motivation, especially the kind that acknowledges pain. There's so much pain, suffering, etc. So we don't want to whitewash that. But if being aware of that stirs up anger or whatever, if that's our sole motivation, it easily goes bad. So those might provide some hints for you to explore further. Was her story of some help in sort of looking at the difference between first arrow level, which can be a bunch of little arrows, when we talk about it, we might lump all the little arrows into one big arrow. But if we go back to what was going on over minutes and hours or days, could be a lot of unpleasant arrows. And then each time there's the opportunity to, to get shot again, in the reaction to the first arrows. And then what is the nature of that reactions in us? Is that a framing that makes sense with your experience? The second arrow is almost always about a sense of self arising. That, um, you know, that this happened to me. And it's not just this happened, but then the second arrow is this happened to me and then the whole big um, sense of self and the the story um, around that. And what I um, use sometimes when that, 
second arrow strikes, especially if it's about um, blaming. You know, it's, it's another person. How could this person say? And I just find myself going over and over and over the scenario that is the painful, the hurting scenario. So after many years of practice of working with this, I've come up with the um, visualization whenever I start to go down that road, I say to myself, gutter ball, because I visualize a bowling alley, and I just know that when I pick that up and start to, you know, and he or she, and you know, I just say, gutter ball, gutter ball, because I just know where, where it's going to go. And that's because one of my uh, Dharma teachers said, has there ever been an instance where blaming ever led to anything but more suffering? And... um it doesn't. So that's that has been a useful... I mean, there's the wonderful visualization of the arrow, but then there's also the wonderful Dharma visualization of the bowling alley. That's an interesting update. <laughs> we'll have to put bowling alleys in the uh, suttas. <laughs> Thanks. And just to tease that out a little bit, some of us in our thoughts might say, not directly say it's happening to me, but it's happening to my friends, my community, my, my world. But that means it's happening to me in a certain way. But the language might be mine as well, but more or less the same. I'm Don. I'm just wondering, um, it, I've always tried to stop the second arrow, but it's inevitable. It's like you get shot with the first one, and then there's another one. It's there, so it's kind of, it's painful. The second one's painful as well, but but what it, I think if I, I was doing something last night, I had uh, late at night before I was going to go to bed, I was going to put a remant, uh, I had to dismantle a fire alarm. Uh, smoke detector in the ceiling and so before I went to bed I put the battery back in and uh, put it up and then all of a sudden it was like oh it was so loud I like blew my eardrums out and then I noticed the cat was on the bed and then the cat oh, just jumped off the bed and then I'm like oh it's like this is just great just you know winding down feeling good to go to bed and then the cat hardly ever meows or anything and came up to me and let me know <laughs> first like meow you know meowed for a little while and then i just thought oh how dumb how could i be so stupid i needed ear protection for myself and i probably should have put the cat downstairs and now i've wrecked the cat's hearing and then even it carried this morning i was like Blame, guilt, shame right and the cat oh no it's, oh, it seems to be hearing me okay but then um, seems like I'm always doing something to the cat, and then I have to bless it with holy water. <laughs> the cat's always running around a little bit wet, but, um, <laughs> um, but I, it was like, you know, it was like, okay, I was told myself, okay, this happened, I did it. Um, you know, next time I'll be more careful about hearing, but it was like, but that's the second arrow. And it's like, it, 
anything I do, there's always just that. I just can't be okay with, okay, this was like, but then I have to go into, oh, I. Okay. Um, may I suggest a couple reframes? <laughs> First of all, it's a scenario we're familiar with, including the cat. Uh, we have a wood stove, and we've been known to burn popcorn. And so smoke alarms going, or just two days ago, we were checking the carbon monoxide. And, you know, I poked it, obnoxious sound, no ear protection. One of the cats doesn't just meow, it <laughs> runs under the bed. So... I sympathize. Here's some refrains. Okay, first, if ever I hear the word always and never, I don't believe it. So I should be honest. Whenever somebody says always, I don't buy it. Could be wrong in your case. But I challenge you to think of times something happened, maybe not. Those, those things, if you're real close, it's painful, it's obnoxious. So I get that part and how one can respond. But I question you to think of situations where it's not quite as bad and all the shame and guilt didn't pile on. And because often this is now you're retelling something and you're using the language of always. Automatic. Automatic gives you no way out. The whole point of this, sec this simile in the teaching is we may not avoid first arrows, but second arrows are optional. When we say always, we're not actually treating the second arrow as optional. And we're sort of condemning ourselves. It's always going to be like this. The old dog can't learn new tricks. So one way I've used personally and encouraged others, stop and do a good review. I'll bet you can find times when the reaction was either much less or you just dealt with something. Like in my case, I've done this smoke alarm drill enough <clears throat> In our house, it's just, okay, open windows, do this, do that, cut the circuit breaker. And if that's not enough, take out the battery. So I just do the steps. And I no longer get mad at my wife for burning popcorn. Sometimes I burn it, though. Um, so that would be one thing. 
that I would suggest you start with. Is it really always? Is it as automatic as you seem to think? That would be a start. But that kind of meta-narrative that's behind words like always, never, doesn't leave us much room for, for freedom. Depending on how that goes, then there may be other layers to work with. But I would start with triple, quadruple checking how always it is. And is it really automatic? But I do accept in myself and others that some reactions are kind of hair-triggered. So the space to work with might be very thin. I think um, one of the first arrows for me has been loss and you know, grieving of a loved one. And then guilt is the second arrow and shame. And then um, having kind of this sense that you can control or you could have controlled the situation differently. And like earlier was said, you have this sense of self where you were, you could have done something differently. It was... Um, you know, it runs in your mind or my mind as the second arrow is coming up. But I think letting go of that sense of self and control and it, whether it's a group of people, like you think that you could implement, um, a different or like help control the situation so that other people would not react. Like, um, that lady over there said, you know, help the other people react to this negative situation. Um, but maybe being there for those people is more important, being present with them rather than um, trying to control the situation. Uh, and I think we can't always be at peace with what happened in the past, but being at pre- in the present mo- moment, you can find that peace just in your breath. But um, that's what I found. Mm-hmm. Maybe you have some comments on that. I usually do. <laughs> but by the way, if you anybody shares something and you don't want comment, let me know. <laughs> um, my take is the loss is first arrow, but you then spoke of guilt. Yes. I would call that a second arrow. Yeah, that's... And shame might be a third arrow where, you know, 
guilt's not enough. <laughs> so that's one comment. And I'm thinking of uh, some family situations where something difficult was going on, a death. And the various difficulties family members had with one of us dying were varied. And, you know, I, I was doing my own personal stuff but also making attempts to intervene with other family members. Some were willing to take some of my Buddhist advice, but others not at all. And so those are more first arrows for me that was painful to watch somebody else's reactivity around the family member who was dying. But then my frustration about not doing something I would call a second arrow. Or when my attempts to intervene were rebuffed. The being rebuffed is, I would say again, a first arrow. It's unpleasant, but my inability to just go, okay, my intervention's not wanted, and just drop it. When I couldn't drop it and push back, I would call that second. And that's where there's more tanglement in and as you and Patrice have said, yeah, there's somewhere in there, the me's in there. But if there's me, there's also craving, which uh, craving, clinging, Maybe, well, looks like two more, and then uh, we'll move on to something. Okay, um, my question is how to respect the first arrow. Um, I think, um, well, I got a, a, several examples, but anyhow, I just think of one in this last week, our beloved leader supposedly said some things disper disparaging of some other countries, and. I felt a lot of anger and frustration and helplessness with that. And, um, that's all second arrow. That's all. Oh, oh, cause he did that. And, and so my way so of did, hearing, hearing the, that is second arrow. The hearing and the meaning. Okay. Attributed. Some people obviously didn't find it painful. Okay. But you did. I did. And so what I do then is like the newspaper came this morning. I don't, I don't listen to the news. I don't, uh, newspaper came this morning. I, I'm going on a retreat today. I don't want to be all upset about reading the news and rehearing a hash of that. So I didn't even open the newspaper this morning. And so the question then is to me, that's, is that a denial of kind of the first arrow? Is that just 
a denial of that event. And because I'm just finding myself more and more denying those kind of painful incidents. Because it's like, I don't want to engage in that. I don't want to hear about it. Right. Well, I would. Because I don't want to get shot again. I mean, that's you don't want to get shot again. I mean, I feel right. by listening to the news, there's more opportunity that I'm going to get shot. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Well, what I would encourage is first, to me, denial is you're saying something didn't happen. Like the gentleman you're referring to does a lot of denial despite evidence. Is that what you're doing? Are you denying something didn't happen? Or are you avoiding rehashing something? You kind of know what's going on, but you're, you're not giving it your attention over and over. I'm not putting myself in a position where I can even hear it. Never. I really, I, I, I'm let more and more. I, that's what I find myself doing. And so is that a... Why are, why are you taking this less vulnerable position? Uh, because it's, uh, it's painful. I, I end up going... It's it's just painful. I end up feeling helpless, and there's not much I feel I can do about it. Okay. Is this self? Is this mature self care, or is it immature escapism? I'd like to think it's uh, mature self care. Well, Periodically, I will engage, you know, when I'm ready, and find out what can I do. And it boils down to me, is there something I can effectively do? And if there's not something I can effectively do, then I don't want to hear about it. Mm -hmm. If that makes sense. I don't want to just be, hear about it and just be overwhelmed with a lot of these feelings because I know I'm, you know, so it's like, okay, if I can act, I'm going to do something. Then I want to listen. If there's a whole lot, my, for instance, my wife comes home and she listens to, Rachel Maddow and a lot of these programs night after night, and it's like I just—it's so painful. I, so this is now a common thing. I talk about it with friends, and they're often spouses who want an endless input from Rachel Maddow and places like that, and then others who are taking approaches similar. To years. I'm not going to say what's right or wrong. It's not my job. I can just off, offer you questions for your own. The answer's not in somewhere else. It's in you looking at your own responses. Which responses are compassionate response to pain and suffering in which are um, 
denials, immature escapism, and so on. And the only way to really answer that is to pay attention to your own motivation. And it can be mixed. Sometimes just leave me alone. And other times, you know, I'm tired, need a break. And sometimes it's just a reality we can only take so much. And, and maybe, again, with the arrow thing, part of it is if I get shot with an arrow, the realistic thing is to address the, the wound, tend to it, as opposed to saying, well, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, and I'm going to get an infection. And, the, you know, I mean, that's the bad story that's doing it. But realistically, if I get shot... I need to do something with it. I need to be responsible. I need to address it. And that's probably a healthy response. And, and that's engaging me, I guess, the self and saying, I'm hurt. <laughs> and right. I need to pull the arrow out. Or if it's, it's got a head, I need to pull it through so it doesn't do more damage. And, um, right. And what I would say with this scenario, which is so common now, and probably both for liberals in certain ways and so-called conservatives and others, that it seems some of our friends just keep letting themselves be shot and are almost perpetually worked up because we're not doing sufficient self-care to deal with the first arrows. Every, just sticking with news, every time there's unpleasant news, and if that's coming too fast and we're reacting to it all, then our reactions are just being fed over and over and over. How useful is that? That's a question. Somewhat rhetorical, but um, it's a fair question. And yet, I'm someone who also feels I'm part of this whole situation. That's part of tomorrow afternoon's <laughs> conversation. <clears throat> so, I want to take in some of the news. But some of it's so repetitive, I really don't need, I don't feel the need to subject myself to it over and over and over again. But I'm still reading, still taking stuff in. But I'm also trying to leave space to think about it. What can I in my life do that's a healthy response? To me, today's something I can do. And in your position. But if we don't allow ourselves that space, we're probably just going to keep reacting, either over, over withdrawal what I earlier called immature escapism, which Buddhists are well known for, and somewhat deservedly. 
maybe not always, but overreactionism, does that really serve the needs of ourselves, people that are close to us, and the broader society? I think these are very hard questions right now that the plus side of this administration is we can't escape anymore. Middle-class white people have been escaping the hard questions for a long time, and many of us now can't, and that's painful. So what are our tools for facing the pain but not needlessly uh, self-inflicting uh, what I'll call right now the Duke of the Second Nobling Truth, which is going to be a segue, but somebody else had her hand up, and then we'll do the segue. Regarding our current administration, I think I'm interpreting it appropriately and what the meaning of all that is. But most of the time, the first arrow is followed by a second arrow because I ascribe meaning to whatever it is that's happening. That's happening because they don't like me. That's happening because I'm a bad person. That's happening because my karma, whatever. Um, and what happens is I kind of, well, that's an illusion. That's not really true. I'm ascribing a meaning to that. But it takes away my ability to be engaged in a response. Mm -hmm. So what's interesting, just from the four or five comments, we're all noticing um, different aspects of the second arrow, which could be more than one arrow. We've heard about the me, you, this way of interpreting which in Buddhist parlance is sanya perception. And then there's the cognitive emotional reactions, sankhara. And the, getting the exact Buddhist terminology doesn't matter so much, but seeing the cluster of stuff that makes up second era such as the way we interpret. Because noticing, say, that piece, you know, I'm not just a helpless victim here, right? That's part of when we notice there's an interpretation going on. That means it could be interpreted a different way. We could also try to avoid interpreting at all. I'm not sure how possible that is. Maybe in some cases. But there are also tools in Buddhist practice to reinterpret in a constructive, wholesome way rather than they don't like me or I did something wrong or which then leads to guilt, shame. So 
I would take it that this piece of interpretation comes, leads to what the woman behind you, when she spoke of guilt and shame, those tend to arise out of some interpretation, it seems to me. My other question is, I mean, when I'm able to let the interpretation go, um, as you were speaking, how do I then engage in positive action if I've kind of taken away? Right. So I think we made full circle here. <laughs> so partly it comes back to motivation, and I already used the word compassion. In this is the official Buddhist line. I think it's a good one, so I don't mind repeating it. Compassion or karuna in Pali is the Pali is the Buddhist term. Compassion's a pretty good, not perfect, but pretty good translation. Compassion is to be with suffering. So how are we with suffering skillfully? And karuna is often explained as the desire to do what we can to alleviate the suffering, whether it's in ourselves or others. So as we... if. Again, if we let things come too fast, we will fall back on our old habits. Almost, I almost said always, but easily fall back on old habits. So to me, one re what seems to me a valid reason to step back a bit is to create space so the old habits don't keep not only repeating but entrenching further, which could be partly part of all the polarization in our society, which can easily suck us in. So but when we have that space to ask, what, what can I do? What is my appropriate response to a painful, difficult, harmful, violent event or situation? That's where compassion can arise. And sometimes the response is nothing, except not make it worse. And do we give ourselves that option? I've had a lot of trouble doing that. A little demand somewhere back in the superego. You ought to do something. You have to do something. But somewhat 
with difficulty, painfully realizing maybe there's nothing I can do. And then my switch is, okay, where can I do useful, constructive things? Channel energy there, which for me includes my own meditation practice, study of Buddhism, cultivating networks, not only Dhamma networks, but working with local activists, uh, for example, Medicare for All has hope in our local community. So I want to put energy there because it has possibilities as far as I can tell. Oh, here's a place where compassion can operate. So we're getting into engaged Buddhist territory here, which is good my, in my book. <clears throat> so another hour has passed. Do we need a break between now and lunch, which will be in 30 minutes? Or can I bring up uh, another piece of this inquiry. Well, it looks like I have permission. Are we all familiar with the words noble truth for noble truths? Okay. The Pali words are arya, Nobles, pretty good translation, or at least a starting point for Arya. Say that word again or spell it so I know what you're actually saying. Arya. And I kind of speak a hybrid Thai American pronunciation of Pali, so don't don't assume I'm pronouncing it right. But at least I know what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. I won't try to go into the etymology of that. The more important term for now is satcha, which we're most used to translated as truth. And that translation's been around a long time. I am now arguing more often that we are saddled with old translations because they're convenient. And that's the main reason Translation's hard work. And to stop with every other word and try to figure out what's the best way to express it, if you're doing a sonnet, you know, 14 lines or whatever, okay. But if you're doing hundreds of pages, 
it's really hard work. So I'm not trying to disparage translators. As a translator myself, something that saves time is you see a word or phrase and you just almost automatically plug in the equivalent. So that's normal in translation. But the translators, it's easy to forget because we know two languages. In my case, Thai and English and somewhat Pali Thai and English. It's easy to forget the readers may only know the the second language, in our case, English. And translators kind of know, okay, Arya Sajja has all this background and nuance. But in English, people who don't know all that background are going to bring other background. And I believe now that the word truth will not bring the background of the Pali term, but the background of the English term, which is Greek, Hebrew, Judeo-Christian. So not everybody here was raised Christian, but speaking to that major influence in our culture, Judeo-Christian, or especially, I'm less familiar with the Judeo-Hebraic part, but religions of the book have concepts like revealed truth, and at least the way I was raised, there are these truths you're not really supposed to question. You just take them. How many of us have been influenced by such a notion of truth? A secondary one that's somewhat in competition is we've replaced the religious authority with the semi-religious scientific authority where those of us who don't really understand the science, but, and my favorite term is experts say, <laughs> or even worse, advertising, nine out of ten doctors in, you know, the footnote on the payroll of the pharmaceutical <laughs> or the toothpaste company, you know, nine out of ten dentists recommend, pick your brand name. Uh, that might have been an unfair cheap shot, but back to uh, scientific truth. It's not actually how science works, but this quasi-religious notion of truth has been attached to science in popular media, that there are these truths which my understanding of science as scientists talk about it, it's 
it's not quite like this truth that you don't question. The whole point of science is you keep inquiring, and if the explanation no longer fits the evidence, you change the explanation, not fudge the evidence. Whereas often, the, to be more blunt, the dogmatic truth doesn't care so much about evidence. And of course, now this is a huge issue in our society politics, media, schools, elsewhere. So this is part of my assertion that a lot of our standard translations could be revisited. And my primary example right now is noble truth. The foremost scholar of the group of languages of which Pali is a prominent member. His, this guy's he's British, K.R. Norman. And he knows not only Pali, but the language of the Jain scriptures, which use a lot of the same terms as Buddhism, and there's some other less well-known languages from the same time in areas of India. He draws upon Pali commentaries hundreds of years, from hundreds of years after the Buddha, and points out even Buddhist commentators acknowledge Arya Sajja can mean four different things. None of which, only one of which translates as noble truth. Noble truth means this truth itself is noble. Actually, now I'm back to noble. Let me set that aside and go back to truth. Sorry, I jumped the gun. The Pali word satcha comes from a root, same with the Sanskrit satya. If you know Gandhian stuff like satcha, graha, so-called nonviolence, it's satya is truth, reality, Force, graha is something like force. Sat means being. And what's at the core of this word satcha is this is not Greco-Roman thought or Greco-Judeo-Christian, it's Indian. It's a notion that being and reality, these are central in Indian teachings, Buddhist and otherwise. Satcha comes from that, that we have a capacity to 
see the sat, the truth reality. And especially in early Buddhist teachings, all experience carries its reality. Or if you like, truth. But it's not coming from a revelation. Or if you want to use the revelation, the revelations in experience itself. This, by the way, is very important to the role of so-called mindfulness and vipassana insight. Our current understandings of mindfulness and insight fall apart if our concept is more, our context is revealed truth. But guess what? Some of our Asian teachers can get dogmatic. I confess I can get dogmatic too if I'm too gung-ho. But so I'm, if we dig into the word satcha, we find meanings around what in English could be reality, truth, that aren't about any outside authority. Our access to reality, truth, is unmediated, which then kind of upends Arya Satcha as noble truth if, and now I'll come to the other word, Arya, and what K.R. Norman points out, going back to the commentators of, say, 1,500 years ago. It could be that the satya is noble. That's one possible linkage between Arya and satya. So there's reality truth that in itself is noble. The question then is, how is suffering noble? When at various times the Buddha describes it as ignoble, anarya. So is the Buddha contradicting himself? Or... Certain things are described as low and crude, hina. So it's problematic in various ways to consider the first so-called noble truth as noble. But it's also possible that Arya means noble one, which means Buddha. So truth of the Buddha. The Buddha had this expression of truth. And so what's noble is not the truth, but where it comes from. And then a a third version of this, which is pretty similar to the second, Noble ones, the plural, refers to all the awakened ones, Buddha and other awakened disciples, 
who sometimes can technically be referred to as Buddhas as well. And then there's a fourth relationship between these two terms, which is the reality truth that makes us noble. Hence, ennobling truth, reality. Norman suggests, and again, he's, as far as I can tell, well, he has an advantage. It's, he's not committed to Buddha's teaching, so he can look at these words with less bias, one might say, than committed Buddhists who have for a long time taken words to have whatever meaning we've learned and felt is the right Buddhist interpretation. Except, what if it's not? <laughs> so I find Norman helpful. Uh, he claims he's not a Buddhist. I'm not sure that's totally accurate, but he doesn't have the strong affiliation that most of our translators have, such as including myself, although I'm a Thai to English translator. So anyway, he thinks it's most likely that Arya Satcha means the truth of the Buddha, or I would prefer the reality pointed to by the Buddha. It's a separate term, the notion of pointing, but it goes back to the early teachings. But my own preference is ennobling reality. And this fits my framework of inquiry. What are the realities that can ennoble us? What are the realities that if we allow ourselves to be challenged by them, if we explore them as honestly, create, courageously, and deeply as we're able each day, and that changes, helps us um, change from ignoble lives lives under the power of greed, hatred, delusion, and not just the whole life, but out of some of the guilt, shame, things like that, that the reactivity we've talked about towards lives that are more motivated, guided by compassion, kindness, generosity, simplicity, honesty, courage, and other virtues. So that's um, my take on these Pali words. I suggest 
that we be very careful with noble truths. I, I think you noticed, I think it's uh, misleading, especially the truth, because of the baggage of the English term. We can still use it. It's kind of necessary because that's what people are familiar with. But when possible, can we explore further? Well, where's the truth? Is the truth in somebody else's words or authority? I would say no. The truth is in reality that we're using tools like mindfulness to explore directly by ourselves, which is hard work, but maybe there's no other way. Personally, I advocate ennobling realities as the most in line with the early teachings as I understand them. Although Norman, I think, is right in saying maybe the best is to try to keep in mind all four possibilities. But that takes up a lot of time if every Dhamma talk we have this conversation. But if you reflect further on what I've just been saying and uh, can, can share with you Norman's writing on this, it's just a few pages in his most accessible book. Most of his stuff's not accessible because he's a linguist of old languages and half of its grammar I don't understand. So I read it for the parts that seem to be about Dhamma understanding and practice. And there's some good stuff that I find helpful. Anyway, ennobling reality. I want to bring this back to now today's inquiry This stuff about truth, reality, harks back to earlier when I spoke of dukkha as arya sajja, ennobling reality, and its other meanings, and dukkha as characteristic. I'm going to take Dukkha's characteristic to be some, a basic existential fact. Is the Dukkha of the first ennobling reality? Existential fact, 
something that's more or less always present, which is the case with lakana, the three, three characteristics of all stuff. And we'll, we can go into that more this afternoon. Is that where the Duke of the Noble Truths is? Which means it's kind of unescapable, at least while we're alive. Which to me is a conundrum that I think official Buddhism has been murky about. Or is the dukkha of the first ennobling reality truth something we do with the existential facts? Is it, does that question first makes sense. Is that a question with meaning for you? Because I think it's a vital one. To begin responding to that question, the second ennobling reality is that dukkha has an origin, which in the standard phrasing is craving. If dukkha is an existential fact, how does that come from craving? Now I'm aware of how some of the orthodox Buddhists try to explain this. I don't buy their explanation, but I'm quite familiar with it. Or is the dukkha of the first noble truth that originates from craving along with ignorance, the kind of meanings you brought up, the shame, the guilt, the greed, the fear, the anger, and then the me and mine, which is, to be honest, how I take it. The dukkha we're talking about in ennobling realities is dukkha caused by the concoctions of ignorance, craving, and so on. What's important here in my understanding is I can practice with and undermine ignorance craving, clinging to me and mine, shame, guilt, anger. All of these have 
if not solutions, antidotes. For example, anger can practice forgiveness. Works great for anger, resentment, blame. Uh, shame and guilt have their tools available for dismantling these patterns. A key rationale of insight meditation is ignorance can be replaced by insight and wisdom. So if we do kind of somewhat orthodox insight practice, it's based on that foundation conceptual foundation, which I think also has a reality that, in fact, there's possibilities for insight if we become skillful in paying attention, inquiring, that gradually replace ignorance with wisdom or wrong-knowing with um, valid-knowing, different ways to translate the terms. I think I've said enough. Any questions about this input I've just made, and it might be helpful. Is what I'm saying familiar, strange, somewhat familiar, um, heretical, common sense? I'm Don. Um, I just always really just kind of struggle with um, existentialism. I'm, I'm trying to wrap my mind about that. Is that something, and how are you using it? Um, I'm not. I'm not up to speed with Heidegger and the existentialists. So I spoke of existential fact. I I didn't mean I'm didn't mean to imply existentialism. Okay. Yeah, I don't. I dabbled in that years ago, but I I can't speak to existentialism. So you were saying existential fact, fact, and meaning facts of existence. Okay. Oh, okay. Facts of daily experience. So, Santi, you gave a really wonderful kind of exposition on Satya. I'm just wondering if you could just say a word about the Arya part. What does ennobling mean? Or noble or... Or noble, yeah, the, the Arya part of it. So, it's been taken in different ways, and I'm a little less clear on the etymology 
but it does refer to class, nobles, commoners. It's got that meaning because India had those. And the Buddha somewhat was a noble, though his caste was the warrior caste. And where he came from wasn't the full-blown four castes. That came later. But he was the privileged level of his society, which was probably an advanced tribal society, not a monarchy. Those were old, later ideas that got postdated back by a lack of historical perspective. So that meaning of noble. Second is um, the tribes that migrated, that we now believe to have migrated from uh, probably eastern Turkey to so-called Aryans who went both to Greece and then came, went east and came down into India. So it's got that meaning as well, which are pre-Buddhist, both of these meanings. In the Buddhist uh, etymologies from the commentaries, which are not the traditional Buddhist uh, commentaries don't define words the way we would expect from a modern dictionary. This is another problem when we interpret old stuff with modern concepts. You'll hear people say, well, the Buddha defined. I challenge someone to actually find the Buddha defining any term anywhere. He gives examples. But definitions like we have in a modern dictionary, I bet you, I, I really don't think there are any. And if there are a few, there aren't many. What the commentaries do is they play with the terms, and often, like with Arya Sajja, they come up with four, five, eight, nine possible meanings. The one that I remember, because I heard it the most, is Ari means enemy or foe. And this shows up in Tibetan explanations I've seen. Ya is a root that means to go. So Arya means that which takes us away from our enemies. And then in this kind of traditional Buddhist wordplay, Enemy is not other people. It's the afflictions of greed, hatred, delusion, shame, fear, guilt, pride, uh, miserliness, all that stuff. So noble is that which removes us or 
takes us away from those enemies that inflict one of the meanings of dukkha. That's part of today. What dukkha is inflicted by these enemies? And so noble frees us from the power of those enemies. That's a creative etymology that seems to me to fit the, uh, the meanings and fit within the broader context of early Buddhist teaching. Maybe one, two more at the most, and we'll break for lunch. Um, I was recently reading the uh, Dhamma Chaka Pavatana Sutta, which is the sutta where the Buddha first talks about these four, I believe. Um, at least that's sort of what we've been told. Um, and he says, what is dukkha? Birth is dukkha. Uh, death is dukkha. To be with what is unloved is dukkha. To be separated from what is loved is dukkha. So there it sounds like he's talking about pain or dukkha vedana um, or even, yeah, I'm not so sure about that third of the, the dukkha as a, <clears throat> as a existential fact. So that, that's just confusing to me. <laughs> like, you know, the, the Buddha's, and how I've kind of interpreted it just to make sense in my own mind is like, from the point of view of ignorance and craving, the lakana, the characteristic of life, of birth and death and, and impermanence is painful, or, or some of it's just painful, and some of it is, um, interpreted as or leads to craving which is suffering but it's just yeah i think it is just confusing that in that very sutta where the buddha is saying this is dukkha dukkha is birth death these this pain and then the second noble truth is there's a cessation of that dukkha the only way i sort of make sense of it is to sort of retranslate that the buddha's in the first ennobling reality is talking about is sort of assuming that craving is present and that's why birth and death and and life conditioned life being separated from what is loved would is dukkha so it's confusing <laughs> that's yeah. my comment so maybe I can make it more confusing <laughs> It's my job. <laughs> um, let's come back to that this afternoon. You left out a few parts, so if I may, I'll fill in. And I'll use dukkha. So birth is jati, be dukkha. Birth is dukkha. Aging is dukkha. Jarabi dukkha. Maranambi dukkhang. Death is dukkha. So birth, aging, death. Elsewhere, we'll also get illness, sickness. But in the Dhammajaka Bhavatana Sutta, first 
I see them as levels for inquiry, and I can say more about that in the afternoon, because that's a widespread starting point in India. Birth is dukkha, aging is dukkha, death is dukkha. Then, um, experiencing the unloved, unwanted is dukkha. And the word here is yoga's in there. <laughs> and then uh, being separated from what one loves and finds satisfying is dukkha. Wanting things and not getting them is dukkha. That's the second level. Then the third is um, sorrow, pain. So, which is dukkha? Sorrow, um, soka. Wait, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair. Soga baritewa dukkha domanasa upayasa. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair are dukkha. So you get this long compound which includes dukkha, and that's dukkha. So what's going on there? And then, in short, Sankitena Banchubata Nakanta Dukkha. In short, the five clinging together aggregates are dukkha. So that's the whole passage. And I chanted it for years, so I can still remember the Pali, the Thai, the, the English. And it's worth memorizing and then chewing on this for the rest of your life. <laughs> you can give up trying to figure it out today. <laughs> it's not meant to be figured out. But we keep chipping away at it, keep learning from it. That's how I take ennobling realities. We keep exploring, and they help lead us out of the dukkha that we can be freed of, the existential facts like pain, I, I take it there's pain that cannot be escaped. But then there's the stuff that is unnecessary, optional. So how about this as a appropriate time to break for lunch? At least one person's giving an enthusiastic yes, <laughs> either due to hunger or potty needs or both. Um, so we'll come back in the afternoon and follow up with some of these. And if you come back with questions, uh, we can raise some questions before continuing whatever roadmap I've got. It's 12.24, so about 45 minutes, sound about right? Or do we need an hour?
45 minutes. It's a democracy, right? <laughs> Hour. Uh, How about 50 minutes? <laughs> so uh, 50 minutes, 35. Come back at 115, which realistically we know will be closer to an hour. But <laughs> please aim for 115, OK? This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.